0: Man, well, I encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. We are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're starting a new series this morning, going through the entire book of uh, 2 Samuel. And so uh, this ain't First Timothy anymore, y'all. We're not talking three to five verses, okay? Got, got 27 to read for you this morning. And that's going to feel short a few times as the series goes on. So, you ready? Knees slightly bent, not locked. You ready to go? We're going to read for a bit. Okay. We got people here. If anyone goes down though, right? We got a medical team if it happens. So we're ready for you, all right? Let's pray. This is the word of the Lord, 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man told, who told him said, by chance I happen to be on Mount Gilboa and there was Saul leaning on his spear and behold the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered and said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen and I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said that it should be taught to the people of Judah Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. It's good to be together. Welcome to those of you who are joining us uh, online this morning. Uh, My name is Chris, and I serve as the ministry development pastor uh, here at DOXA. I am also known occasionally as Ritter from the front. If you've heard that and been confused, that would be me. It's actually my last name, but it's become my first name at many points in my life including with Pastor Scott on occasion. Hey, Ritter, that's a good podcast idea. Am I right? That sort of thing, right? That's what happens. But that's me. Um, I also occasionally uh, shout out to Mike Kessler, who I heard from recently, beloved member who moved away out of state like only a handful of people have. Ha ha. Um, And uh, he calls me Reverend Ritter. But none of you get to do that. Only Mike Kessler gets to do that. And when he comes back, one day I believe he might He can call me that again. All right. Hey, I have got some updates for you. Before we get into the sermon, uh, as the ministry development pastor, I can tell you there's a lot of ministry being developed here. You just heard about part of that with our church plant coming, and praise God for that. And and by no means does that all fall under, under me. We have an amazing team, a growing team uh, of staff who are working here, laboring hard in the Lord with so much going on. I, I do want to give you two updates that are under uh, my care and leadership here. And the first one would be about Eden Classical Academy. Just want to make sure you know uh, that is to a K-12 uh, a school that we're launching in the fall. It's a collab part-time program for supporting homeschool families this fall. We have every intention and are working already for the Lord Willing Day when we will also have a full-time program as well. but it's starting with a part-time collaborative registration is open. Maybe you're actually new enough, you hadn't heard anything about that yet, but registration for this opportunity is open and you can find out information at the Connect Room. And if you're interested in finding out about teaching at Eden Academy, you can go to the Connect Room today and you can find out where to follow up with some more information. I'll stop that there because in two weeks I'm going to be giving a more full update on Eden. Secondly, though, uh, I went to Belize recently. Uh, A number of you probably heard about that on the podcast we did in the state of the church. I traveled there last month as a team of uh, six of us went together. It was myself, uh, Mike Spiro, who works here as well. And then one of our members, Mike Shelton, joined us and we were joined by three men uh, who go to District Church in El Dorado Hills, one of whom works with AIM, which is Agape International Mission. Uh, That was launched by a former pastor in the area here about 18 years ago, and they launched their ministry in Cambodia about 18 years ago uh, to deal with the uh, tragic and, and just um, um, pervasive uh, human trafficking uh travesty that is in Cambodia and it's in many countries unfortunately it's actually more or less in every country in case you don't know that but they started in Cambodia and have seen tremendous fruit rescuing women out of sex slavery uh, giving them a gospel giving them discipleship, eventually planting a church, training them on job skills, and to be able to build a a, a flourishing life uh, having come out of such devastation. And that same work, that same kind of work is actually being started now in Belize after 18 years. They're trying uh, to do it again in the nation of Belize, in the district of Cayo more specifically, and then in the city or the area of San Ignacio, which is only about 30 minutes away from the border of Guatemala. And so uh, they planted a missionary and his family in San Ignacio uh, early 2021 for networking, relationship. There are some ministries in Belize doing this sort of work, but it's a, um, again, it, it's a pervasive issue there. So there's more than enough space to have a new ministry there for this purpose. And after a year, they uh, partnered with a, um, or during the course of the last year, they partnered with another Christian organization. They've been um, fundraising for that organization to finish raising funds for a 20-person residence uh, where they would come out of uh, sex slavery and be rehabilitated and given counsel and given the gospel and again discipled as they come to faith in Jesus. And so they partnered with that ministry who successfully finished their fundraising um, very recently, and they are actually AIM, Agape International Mission is seeking to do its own purchase in that kind of similar area as well. You can see one picture of one of the residences here. This used to be an American uh, study abroad center uh, in Belize in that area. And with COVID two and a half or so years ago, they uh, shut it down and they decided not to open it back up. And so, in the course of the last year, uh, AIM has been interacting with the owners. This is a 17-acre property uh, with two large homes like that, and a couple other small uh, uh, buildings as well. It's I got to stay the night, first night when we were there in that building. In fact, it's a a great facility, and it's um, just going to be a spectacular opportunity. Should the Lord provide, they're seeking to raise $800,000. They're more than half of the way there, and they're going to have 20 to 22 women able to stay with them as well. for their rehabilitation and counseling and, again, gospel ministry going on there. And so uh, we're very excited to tell you, church, that after I talk to the elders about just what can we do, at least in the short term, uh, we're, we've decided that we are going to be uh, giving $30,000 to AIM for the purposes of helping secure this facility and their operations in Belize. So I want to want to praise God for that, for your generosity that makes that possible. Those are part of the funds that we are setting aside. Each, each year we're setting aside funds for generous opportunity and we want to take advantage when we can and so we're praying about what the, uh, a more longer term approach might be, uh, if and how to participate in, in more ways besides uh, uh, finances, but it's uh, great to be able to say that we're going to start there, Okay. Let's jump in to 2 Samuel chapter 1. This is a new series. It's going to take us about six months to get through. And, and Scott already asked the question, but I, I didn't get to see. Uh, so I want to ask it again. Who was here for First Samuel back in 2019? Okay, so if you look around a little bit, Uh, you can keep your hands up just so you look around a bit church we've like tripled maybe and then some uh, and praise God for that is grace and that growth since 2019 uh, we ended the series right before we moved into this building Um, in fact it was the first uh, series when we changed our name to Dr. Church I was just realizing that but that took about six months to go through and I want to encourage those of you who were not here the many of you who were not here uh, to go back and listen to the After the Heart sermon series that's what it was called you can find that on the app but I want to also encourage Encourage all of you to consider something which would be a one-month Bible reading challenge of sorts. Read First Samuel and Second Samuel, two chapters a day. It'll take you almost exactly a month. Well, I'll encourage you, you know where we're going. You should get your own devotional time in line with that. Get familiar with the characters. Get familiar with the story. It's really one story that we're delving into today at about the halfway point, as you'll see. So I'd encourage you, get get to where we are and then get well past that to know, boy, can't wait for that to be covered. That's a nasty death. Whoa, what happened there? How many wives did David have? Are we going to talk about that? Yes, we'll get there. We'll talk about that. It'd be exciting to know that many of you would be joining us to pray for this sermon series. And so the series is called Kingdom and Covenant. And these are two words that really encapsulate well the major themes of the book, that God has established a kingdom And he's establishing it in history through Israel. But then, of course, there is an eternal kingdom that is even far greater and will be the theme that we will come to often. God's kingdom that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is a covenant-keeping God. As he makes this covenant with David in uh, 2 Samuel 7, we will see he is faithful to keep the covenants that he establishes. Now, before we crack open to 2 Samuel, we do need to do a little bit of kind of like on the uh, previously on TV shows, right? This is going to be more than just a couple of minutes because, like, it's 31 chapters that I'm going to do my best to bring you up on the kind of 30,000-foot view of who are the players, what are we dealing with, and then we get into second Samuel because, again, we are smack dab in the middle of ultimately one story here, Okay. So about 1st Samuel. 1st Samuel opens with a woman named Hannah who had no children but desperately sought one from the Lord. He answered her prayers and the baby's name was Samuel. And Hannah dedicated Samuel to the Lord, and Samuel was given, as she promised, to a a priest named Eli in in the temple of Shiloh, and that's where Samuel was raised up. And Samuel became the prophet of Israel for many years, thus the name of uh, the two books here. Now, in those days, God was Israel's king. And yet Israel was dissatisfied for that for they wanted a king like the other nations. And so God gave them a king named Saul. And we read this in chapter nine, verse two. Saul was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. That's it. That was the litmus test that Israel wanted For their first king. And so they got what they wanted. Samuel warned the people against having another king other than God himself. But the people were stubborn. Shocker. Israel? Yes. Stiff-necked. And they wanted Saul as king. And so they got it. And no surprise. Just as they were warned, he was a capital D disaster. Dumpster fire disaster. You can read it for yourself. God rejected Saul for his disobedience and unbelief, yet he did remain king unto the end of his days, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Now, God did work through Samuel, the prophet, to anoint another king, a young shepherd boy, the youngest of eight sons named, good job, class, named David. And I'm going to have to um, fly over all sorts of interesting details. But suffice to say, this is again a macro summary here. David was blessed tremendously by God. This is the David of whom they said as they would sing a song. And I'm paraphrasing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. He was a mighty warrior. He was really the the, the kind of a people's champion. This is the one who slayed Goliath in 1 Samuel as well. And so David is tremendously popular, and it's no secret that he's going to be the next king. And so Saul, being the dumpster fire he is, hates David, hates him with a passion, chases him all over the geography of Israel and beyond for many years. But The problem, with, uh, the problem for Saul was not only that he couldn't find David, couldn't capture David, but he also couldn't get away from David because David married Saul's daughter. So David was Saul's son-in-law, and I assure you, no matter how you feel about your, your in-laws, it is not as bad as David had it with his father-in-law. All right? Again, you can read the details for yourself. But it goes further because one of Saul's sons, Jonathan, was David's best friend, Like BFF to the max, like soul buddies, brother from another mother, they were loyal to the very end to one another. And and, and as we'll see, he says, your love was so extraordinary, greater, and in a different way than that of the love of a woman. He loved him from the heart, and Jonathan humbled himself knowing that he would have been the heir except for God's promise to David, he humbled himself and supported and exalted David, defended David. So Saul couldn't get away from David. Now, we're going to go towards the end of the book, and, and there's uh, two simultaneous battles going on. David has been chased out of Israel, and he ends up, this is like uh, Um, incredible as you read the story. David ends up going to the sworn enemy of Israel, the Philistines, and convincing them to let him join their army. And he's trying to convince them he will even go into battle against Israel with the Philistines. But some Philistine soldiers speak up and they're like, no, uh not going to trust that he's not going to double double us and cross us and all of this. And so they end up kicking him out. And the Philistines go and battle against Saul and Jonathan and the Israel army. And then David goes to his own battle against the Amalekites because they had kidnapped his two wives again, Today's not the day, but we'll be talking about that at some point. David goes and rescues his two wives, and actually a whole bunch of people had gotten kidnapped, and he slays the Amalekites, and that's where we see 2 Samuel chapter 1 pick up and in David's narrative. But meanwhile, simultaneously, Saul and his son Jonathan, I think all of his sons, in fact, fall in battle against the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 31. So this is where we get into 2 Samuel. The title this morning is The Mighty Have Fallen. Just as David laments three times, the mighty have fallen. Philistines overwhelm Israel's army. Many die, many flee. Saul uh, gets struck by the archers, and after trying to get the armor bearer to kill him, who it won't for fear because he shouldn't kill God's anointed, Saul ends his own life by suicide. The next morning, the Philistines find his body, chop off his head, parade him around uh, Philistia, and they put him up on like a, a fortress wall. His body, beheaded. They're just celebrating the disgrace and the shame that Israel is experiencing because they hate them with a passion. And so the opening scene of 2 Samuel, does that help get us into the moment, get us into the mood to see what's going on? This is utter defeat. This is one of the darkest periods thus far in Israel's history with the fall of their first king. And then we get into our big idea this morning. Let me give it to you. The dishonorable death of God's anointed will not be the end of God's redemptive plan. Saul died a very dishonorable death having lived a very dishonorable life as the first king of Israel. Now God is not done though. This is what we're going to see. This is sort of a transition chapter from chapter 31 into David's reign. This is what we know. It will not be the end of God's redemptive purposes. I'm going to talk about this chapter in three acts and then we're going to make some application at the end. Act 1 covers verses 1 to 10. It's a fabricated story Fabricated story, David is in uh, Ziklag after he comes back from defeating the Amalekites. Ziklag was like his base camp. It had been given to him and to his soldiers, so it was kind of a maybe a respite after his battle. And for two days he was there. And on the third day, verse 2 tells us, A man from Saul's camp came with clothes torn and dirt on his head. And that is a cultural symbol uh, of mourning and grief and sorrow. And he comes by himself. So in the very least, David can understand this is not going to be good news. He falls to the ground and pays homage to David. Again, it's no surprise David's going to be the next king. And this man had traveled from the battle approximately 80 miles from Gilboa to Ziklag. And he falls before David. And David says, where'd you come from? And he says, I have come from the camp of Saul or the camp of Israel in verse 3. Well, how'd it go? David begins an investigation. This man just w- with, uh, with um, no nuance. Verse four, the people fled and many of them died and Saul and Jonathan are also dead. He knows that ultimately, while there were mass casualties, what David wants to know is about Jonathan and about Saul. So he cuts right to the chase. There's no, no two ways about it. Now, David asks this question, though. Okay, that's going to take you back. How do you know, though? How how do you know what happened to him? And he goes into his story now in verse 5 and 6. And this is where it gets interesting. Because he starts with, by chance, I was on Mount Gilboa. By chance, you say. It's like, were you walking your dog and you ended up in the midst of a big battle? Like, I don't know what happened. I was... On Mount Gilboa, and then things, stuff happened, and now I'm here. But no, I was on Mount Gilboa by chance, he says, and it gets interesting as it goes on because he says that he found Saul essentially by himself impaled by his own spear, It's interesting in part because um, no self-respecting soldier in the Israelite army is going to leave the king by himself to die like that. Now maybe there was no self-respecting soldier given how bad the battle went. Maybe. But it seems unlikely. But his story is that the, the, the camp of the Philistines were gathering around Saul and I was there he saw me and asked me who I was. I told him I was in Amalekite. And then, you know, I don't know. Um, he asked me to kill him, end it. So I did. I struck him down. He wants it to be spun as a compassion kill of sorts. And then he traveled the 80 miles from Bilgo- Gilbo- Gilbo- Bilgoa, Gilboa, 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 to Gilboa about 80 miles, and he lays before him the crown and the armlet. Now, there seems to be no doubt that that's, that's the truth. He laid it before him, and how did he get it? We don't know for sure. But, but what's interesting for us as the advantaged readers in the moment is that we've got 1 Samuel, and we have the narrator's spirit-inspired version of the story in 1 Samuel chapter 31 about Saul ultimately ending his own life by falling on his sword, which is different than a spear, even though you read 1 Samuel and his spear was famous. David knew that well because he threw it at him many times trying to kill him. But so we've got a different story here. We have some overlap in that Saul died and where he died, but a lot of discontinuity as well. So we would do well to say, and commentators would agree because they're right next to each other, that when you have to go with the spirit-inspired narrator of 1 Samuel, who lays it out in, in chapter 31, verses the Amalekite, who is another famous and noteworthy enemy of God's people, spin of the story to lay before David the crown we're going to go with the narrator's version of the story. We're going to go with there is a spin going on where this guy managed to get out of the battle and wants to angle himself in such a way that he would come off well to the new king. And he's expecting there to be some sense of relief for David because finally it's over. All the chasing, all the animosity, it's over. Saul's not king. You're the king now. And here I bring you the crown as, as a demonstration of my probable loyalty to you. I'm gonna, we're, we're speculating a little bit, but with the two stories, we're going to go again with the spirit-inspired narrator in chapter 31 versus the spun-up tale of the Amalekites. But he brings him the crown, and this is his version of the story, and David doesn't know any different, right? Nothing's been written down yet. David is hearing this news, and it's true enough in the sense that Saul is dead and that Jonathan is dead and all these things, and so David's got a a choice, basically, a response. How will he respond to this news? There there is potentially some relief, but what does David do instead? Act 2. A swift reversal. David, in response to this news, rather than, oh, finally, finally, give me that crown, you know, right here. It's over, and my time has begun. No, not his heart at all. What do, what do we see him do? He tears his clothes, and the men who were with him do the same, and they mourn and they wept. This is a loud, weeping and mourning over the state of Israel and even Saul and Jonathan. And all day goes by, no food, mourning and weeping, sitting in their grief for the nation of Israel, for so many had fallen by the sword. I just got to imagine that Amalekite's feeling a little awkward. If I'm right, that he was expecting relief and he got eight to ten hours, maybe, of just grief-stricken mourning. It's like, I mean, I just gave you the crown. Let's, let's go forward. I don't know about that. But he's sitting there, apparently watching. We don't know what he's doing during the rest of that day. We know what happens to him very swiftly once David stands back up. David continues his investigation of the young man after mourning, weeping, weeping, tearing of his clothes. Where do you come from? Well, he says, I am a sojourner and a Malachite. And this is a way of saying, I would wonder even maybe nervously, uh, I, I, I mean, I'm an Amalekite, a traditional enemy of Israel, but I'm a sojourner, which is like saying my father immigrated to Israel. We are sojourners and the law, God's law has stuff about sojourners and foreigners who are in your land. So I'm a sojourner, I'm I'm a friendly inhabitant of Israel while I am in Amalekite, he says. David said to him, this is the final question, which is the judgment. How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? With piercing clarity, David cuts through any nuance And he just says, the the, the most true thing from what David knows at the moment is that you have informed me you killed God's anointed, that you murdered the king. And for that, capital punishment, go execute him. He orders one of his young men who dutifully obeys. And David says to him, apparently as he's dying, your blood beyond your head for your own mouth has testified against you i have killed the lord's anointed now some of us may read that as we will just so you know a lot of things in second samuel and think well that was quick or that was drastic I don't know how I feel about that. That seems extreme. That seems like a snap judgment of David to do this to this man. In fact, remember, he, he's trying to ultimately say, here's the crown. This is Saul's crown. But now you're going to be the king. Instead, David just, again, pierces through the noise. And he knows, you, even by the, by the way, by the claim alone, for he doesn't have, there's nobody else around to contradict this story or add any context you have claimed you've killed the king and it's going to be your life in exchange for it. And before we make our judgment maybe about David, we need to understand there is a biblical principle undergirding this that does come into our own lives and that is the principle that we are responsible for our sins. We're not not ultimately just responsible to a king on earth, but we are responsible to the holy God who has made us. And our sin is deserving of death, for the wages of sin is death, Romans 3 tells us. Romans 6 tells us, excuse me, 623. And we need to understand the weightiness of this, that our judgment doesn't come like the young man's does in an immediate fashion, but that's simply an expression of the patient mercy of this holy God. that our sin for which we're responsible for, does not end in our swift judgment. And we need someone to remove the guilt of our sin which requires a death in our place, which is what God provided for in the law in the Old Testament with a sacrificial system. For again, the wages of sin is death for all who have fallen short of the glory of God. And before we get to who that is and what that solution is, we need to understand, extreme as it seems, that principle behind it of the responsibility that this man bears for his sin is an analogy to our responsibility for our sin. And then we get to Acts, Act three, which is a tragic lament. David takes down a pen or something, and a paper or a parchment, and he's going to write this lament, this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan. Now, what is a lament? A lament in Scripture is a formal expression of sorrowful mourning. It is usually done in poetry or in song, or maybe both. It is a sad song expressing deep anguish over the events of life or over sin or over the death of someone else. Now, it is not merely a word vomit of complaint, It is a thoughtful and intentional demonstration of your heart ultimately before God. And David wants this lament taught to Israel, so he has it recorded in what is called the book of Jashar, which means the book of the upright. And it's actually mentioned in Joshua chapter 10 verse 13, and so it would appear that this would have been a historical, uh, record-keeping book of national events that they would have wanted uh, uh, recited or learned by the nation of Israel. Now lament is all over the Bible. Lamentations is a book of lament in the Old Testament over Jerusalem's collapse historically in that time period. There are many psalms of lament. When you read those psalms that are just sad and sadder and saddest, that's a lament psalm. Now, in many lament psalms, there is a turn, appropriately, to say, but I will hope in you, Lord. I will trust in your steadfast love despite my confusion, despite my desperation, despite the fact that I don't understand what's going on. I have questions, God. That's what a lament often does in the scriptures. And I would encourage you to consider a, a book, if you need like the language of lament in your prayer life, I would encourage a book called Deep, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy is a pastor's journey into the understanding of lament in the scripture and its place in the Christian's life. And I believe you would do very well to check that out. But this lament is a sort of eulogy here as well. He is mourning, but he wants to teach it to Israel. He wants it recorded as his thoughts, David's thoughts, the day he found out about the death of Saul and Jonathan. Lay this down. This is a eulogy in remembrance of these two men primarily. And because it's a poem, it's not really something you're going to, you know, teach in a verse-by-verse manner like, again, maybe something like from Paul, like 1 Timothy, where you're getting into every last word. But you read it and reread it, and you see themes that pop up. And so a few themes that come up, there are more, but for the sake of time, notice in this, in this lament poem how David chose to speak about Saul. This is a public record of how David's going to remember Saul. He had more than enough opportunity to highlight Saul's many sins against him. More than enough chance to do a good riddance poem about Saul. But instead, he is going to basically bury Saul's offenses with Saul being dead. Saul is gone and the sin of Saul is between him and the Lord that he has now met. And David is not going to dwell on those past sins. It doesn't mean he's just sanitizing it and acting like it never happened. But publicly, he's going to speak of respect about the former king. Number two, we see this, that David speaks most fondly of Jonathan, whose love, it says in verse 26, was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, much has been made of verse 26 and a couple other verses similar to it. We read about David and Jonathan trying to eroticize their friendship. May I just tell you, this speculation speaks not of these men and their friendship, but of our hypersexualized culture. There is more than enough evidence David loved women, sinfully so. As we'll know very well in Second Samuel. And we unfortunately have lost sight of the beautiful reality of two men being friends in such a way that is a bond that is closer than brood, blood brothers the extraordinary bond of love that is praiseworthy. For again, Jonathan humbled himself, knowing that David will be the next king and not him, never turned on David, defended David, exalted David in the nation. And they loved one another, even unto death. And that's all we need to take away from that. And finally, third, we see the three times cry, the mighty have fallen. This is what Israel is to remember. So that one day if a child were to ask, hey, King David, the day he became king, what did he say? What did he remember? Was he excited to be king? And his parents can say, well, actually he mourned with his men. And he wrote this lamentation that the mighty of the nation had fallen. Saul and Jonathan and so many soldiers had fallen. The nation was in disgrace. He did not take the excited, relieved route, but he was devastated for the nation. He wants it laid down in history that this is how he took in the news. And this is how... Second Samuel 1 closes. Dark days. Total tragedy. This is how David's reign is going to begin in Israel. It would be understandable and understandable to ask, okay, so that's been a long time, Chris, waiting for the part where it has to do with me and my life. Is there any application we draw from this chapter? It's just a narrative that transitions from the death of Saul and Jonathan into David's reign beginning in chapter two. And so what do I draw from this? Well, let's remember firstly, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And the scripture that Paul specifically has in mind is what we would call the Old Testament. Paul's busy writing the New Testament. So when he says that, we know it includes the whole of the canon of the scriptures. But in that moment, he's thinking all the Old Testament. Not so much written to us, but written for us. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about this. Romans 15 talks about this. It is written for our instruction, for our benefit, for our correction, for our warning. And so if we are believers of the word, check, check, yeah? Okay, believers of the word, we're going to look and we're going to ask God to help us see things to, to apply. And so let me bring out three, three points of application I imagine as you do your dutiful study over the next month, you will learn the art of drawing out application from the Old Testament narrative. It's a healthy exercise for your devotional life. So firstly this, entrust yourself to God and do not take matters into your own hands. This is a meta takeaway, if you will, about David up to this point. David does not have positive lessons at every turn, but we do have one from him here. That as a young man, a, a promise and anointed to be the next king of Israel, he never took matters into his own hands to become king and in fact condemned the one that did unto death by killing Saul. He had opportunity at least two times to kill Saul with his own hands and get away with it in 1 Samuel, and he never did. He refused to go beyond What he did not know. He did not know the Lord's timetable. And he was not going to take it in his own hands. And there is a place for us to consider. How often do I take matters into my own hands? When I am hurt. When I am slandered. When I am, we could use the language of victim. I mean, David was that to Saul. When I feel those feels, when those sins have done against me, how often have I lashed out? How often have I taken matters into my own hands? How often do I have the vengeful spirit that takes advantage of an opportunity and even spins it to say, this is from the Lord. I've been sinned against. I have an opportunity to come out against this person. I'm taking it. David always avoided that entrusting trusting himself to God. And I would say this, even when, when we see or it feels like maybe an enemy that's come against us is winning in life, We entrust ourselves to the Lord who knows all, sees all, and will judge all in the end in perfect righteousness. So even if you come to the end of your days not being able to get the righteous judgment and vindication that you believe you deserve, God will ensure in the end, in the final analysis, no one gets away with anything. Secondly this, embrace constructive lament. Embrace constructive Lament, here's what I mean. If David would have put this lament down on social media today, what do you think people would have thought of? That. Don't you think if people knew anything of the story of David, they would have criticized David for sanitizing and whitewashing and just making Saul out to basically be better than he really was? Because in our day, public shaming gets a high marking of approval. Rather, David takes the honorable route and conceals, not denying, but conceals what is now with Saul in death. It's over. And he's not going to remember it anymore. He's going to let the Lord deal with that. The Lord will vindicate him. He gives a constructive lament, refusing to air out his grievances, though there were many of them. And there's a word here for husbands. There's a word here for wives. There's a word here for those in a church community when people may come against you, when people may offend you, and truly they may. There's a word to watch out in your own spirit for how you would speak in a public manner about said person who has been against you, or how in a group of of friends as you are bantering about things, and again for the husband toward the wife when she's not there, the wife about the husband when he's not around, do you speak in constructive manners? And this is not to say you never share the reality of what's against you with trusted friends, right? There's counsel in that, right? This is not the same thing as that though. This is in your public demeanor as you speak about someone, are you joyful in shaming them? Dragging their name through the mud, even if it's all true. Embrace a constructive lament. David, in his sorrow, would not go on attack mode. Or something to take away for us in that as well. Finally, this exult in the dishonorable death of your true king. Exult. E X U L T. I got my third E in here. Exult and the dishonorable death of your true king. I told you the big idea was that the dishonorable death of God's anointed will not be the end of God's redemptive plan. Saul was God's anointed, the first king of Israel. David says as much in verse 14. The word anointed in the Hebrew coming into English is the word Messiah. And in the New Testament Greek, that would come across as Christos or Christ. Saul was a disgraceful anointed king that God ultimately rejected. But God has another anointed king, true and eternal, the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed king of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus, too, died a dishonorable death. Though not guilty of any sin, he died the dishonorable death on the cross, paying for our sins. And this is what God has to say in Colossians chapter 2 about that dishonorable death, in which it was believed by the spiritual enemies, much less the, uh, the, the enemies that came against Jesus, human enemies. The spiritual enemies also believed they had disposed of Jesus, disposed of the Holy One of God. And here's what it says. Paul writing... Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, listen, God, in Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so in Jesus' dishonorable death in your place for your sin, God ensured that the true anointed one, Jesus Christ, His disgraceful death was actually his victory. And it is yours as well for all who turn from sin and embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and King. Jesus is the one who suffered the most dishonorable death on the cross, removing from you who believe the shame of your sin, the scorn of your sin, the death and the punishment you deserve, he took upon himself. Nailing it to the cross, God disarmed in Jesus the spiritual enemies that are against us, who want to continue to accuse you, who want to continue to belittle you and mock the name of Jesus in this world. They are already defeated enemies. And God used the disgraceful death of his true anointed one, Jesus Christ, and then vindicated him on the third day when he rose again. And having ascended, he now reigns over all, returning one day to judge the living and the dead. This is the Savior that you have, dying a disgraceful death in your place. And so have you turned to embrace Jesus, the living and reigning king over all kings, who welcomes you into his kingdom by grace and establishes for you the new covenant made with his own blood. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you loved us and sent him to be the Savior, the King, the Messiah. Thank you that he, in dying the dishonorable death that he did, he brought us the removal of shame, the forgiveness of sin, and life everlasting. We praise you, God. We praise you that death is not the end and that you are still working in this place to raise those who are spiritually dead unto new life. So as we respond in song, oh God, may we reflect and rejoice in our King and his work for us. Amen.